You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Drug war began with the process of colonization. The current measures are based on fear. Thank you very much to Freedom of Species. Back next week from 1pm on 3CR. Find all your favourite 3CR shows at 3cr.org.au. Many of them have podcasts as well. And we're all producing our shows from isolation. But that doesn't mean that they're any less a show. And I hope this afternoon proves it. We have an action-packed show. Uh, we're going to be hearing segments from the Yarra Drug and Health Forum's first online forum, which was held on Monday. The theme of that forum was What Works and Why, Evaluating Peer Worker Programs. We heard from a number of people there. You can view the full forum at ydhf.org.au. We're also catching up with Ronnie Grieg, who founded the not-for-profit organisation The Zero Block Society, thezeroblock.org. Ronnie is from Vancouver in Canada, which uh, in 2016 declared a public health emergency due to the number of overdoses. We're going to hear a little bit about uh, what's been going on on the ground uh, in Vancouver in Canada. A lot of juxtapositions to make, a lot of similar policy, a lot of differences as well. If you are a person who uses drugs, and that includes alcohol, uh, head to globaldrugsurvey.com. Global Drug Survey conduct an annual online survey, collecting responses from around the world and analysing different drug trends and patterns. Uh, but right now they're running a special edition on COVID-19. Interested to see what the results will be because it does seem that things have changed. <laughs> surprise, surprise. It's changed for everybody. Globaldrugsurvey.com. And also the Pennington Institute here in Melbourne are doing a survey, which you can find at surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash drug use survey, which I'll also share on the social media. This first track nicely bridges our gap between Melbourne and Vancouver uh, because Goosebumps, who the track is by, uh, was recently in Melbourne and he was in northern New South Wales. And now he has moved uh, to Vancouver where he's continuing to pursue his music career. Uh, so you can support him. Please do so. Post a link on the social media and you can also find it in the podcast description. This is Goosebumps from the Autophagy EP. This is Autophagy on Psychedelia.
You're listening to 3CR. We really are in unprecedented times and 3CR, as your local community broadcaster, is trying to do our part to minimise the spread of the coronavirus throughout the community. At the front of our minds is protecting the most marginalised and vulnerable, but we are still here. And we'll continue broadcasting 24 hours a day with radical alternative content throughout this period, but things will sound a bit different. Some programmers will present their shows on the phone and we'll be finding creative ways to bring you our regular programming. So stay tuned, stay safe and be kind to each other. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Viruses like flu and coronavirus spread when tiny droplets from coughs and sneezes land on surfaces that others touch. You can help reduce this risk by coughing or sneezing into your elbow or upper arm or use a tissue and put the tissue in the bin straight after. Then wash your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Together, we can help stop the spread and stay healthy. Visit health.gov.au to learn more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. This is In Psychedelia, broadcast out of 3CR's Fitzroy Studios. We've been broadcasting weekly since 2015, covering the many facets of the drug war. We're currently producing the show remotely and speaking to a range of guests about the effects of COVID-19 on drug markets, usage rates, harm reduction messaging and the broader affected communities, especially music festivals, concerts and other community events. Catch up on previous episodes by subscribing to our podcast. Find us under the programs at 3cr.org.au or follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. We're here this afternoon on In Psychedelia with a special guest from Canada, Ronnie Grigg, who has founded a not-for-profit called Zero Block Society and has worked throughout his career training people to work in supervised drug consumption sites. Welcome to the show, Ronnie. Thank you very much for having me. So we've, we've wanted to catch up with somebody from Canada for quite some time. We've kind of been watching from afar this this kind of emerging phenomenon of um i guess the the growing overdose crisis which has impacted in canada not just the kind of opioid using communities or injecting drug users where that's maybe more of a familiar phenomenon but has also kind of contaminated the drug supply of um other other drug using populations that might use substances like mdma or cocaine You've got a long history of uh, working in this space. Could you maybe give us a bit of background over how things have changed maybe over the, the last decade or so and um, how that's kind of looked on the ground? Sure. Uh, well, um, 
my history with uh, um, uh, super, supervised consumption sites uh, started in uh, um, a site that has a fair degree of notoriety called Insight here in Vancouver in, in Canada. And up until um, 2000 and uh, where are we now? I th- uh, 2016, um, the fall of 2016, it was one of two supervised consumption sites outside of Europe, including one in Sydney, Australia, and, and one in Vancouver, Canada. And um, and so I, I worked there uh, for, I, I've worked there since 2009. And um, what my time in working there, there was really sort of, sort of like a pre-overdose crisis time and a post and, and, and things have dramatically changed in that time period. And, and one of the things I could say about the, the pre, uh, the pre overdose crisis time was that it was a really effective service. We had it very much, uh, dialed in overdoses were manageable. We had an established place in our community um, where people could go to get supports and services. And we also um, functioned somewhat as almost like a walk-in clinic for wound care, uh, for medical advice. And it was just this really, really effective um, uh, resource of, I used to say that we triaged the community because we were known as a place where uh, staff would say yes and we would do our best to to um, help people to access resources. The, uh, was was this site, uh, here, here in Melbourne, we've just established our first uh, supervised drug consumption site uh, almost two years ago now, and it was quite a battle to get that set up. Was it similarly difficult to get the site established initially in Canada? Yeah, absolutely. So it was established as like a, lo- a lot of... Um, a lot of methods for for pushing the envelope or or kind of turning the head of uh, policymakers and decision makers um, it, it comes through research, right? So initially, Insight was a research project, and so we were giving a given a federal exemption um, in um, under the uh, Controlled Substances Act that that people and people could uh, bring their own. Um, their own supply of of whatever substance they they used, and staff wouldn't, you know, would be protected under that um, under that that um, exemption. And so, initially, it was a research project that was then renewed uh, annually after that, um, up until um, uh, it came under scrutiny from a, a, a federal government that was that was quite hostile and challenged the the uh the efficacy of of the uh, service model and um the nonprofit the that runs insight uh called the portland hotel society had to uh endure three challenges in the supreme court um and and ultimately one um, supreme court decision in 2011 determined that the service was an essential clinical service for for that that demographic for substance users. So, yeah, it's been a fight constantly, um, up, really up until a, a change in government um, in in 2015. Is that your um, typing, Ronnie? No, you know what that is is my dog um, <laughs> chewing on. Uh, 
Okay, I was wondering if that was coming through. I've been quite conscious of her. It's like she loves that. You're listening to 3CR. Australian music needs your help. Music festivals, concerts and local gigs have been cancelled due to coronavirus. Artists, crew and music workers have lost their jobs and don't know when their next gig will happen. We're all facing the sound of silence. But you can help. Visit thesoundofsilence.com.au now. And Psychedelia, streaming at 3cr.org.au, live on 855am and digital. Uh, my name is Nick Ash, and I are currently speaking with Ronnie Greek from the Zero Block Society in Vancouver, Canada, about the drug overdose crisis that has hit that country over the past five years. If you want to read some of Ronnie's work, his website is thezeroblock.org. In October 2014, that's when black market fentanyl first appeared in the drug supply, right? And it was like uh, a, a like a day to, to night approach. Um, we Insight went from averaging 10 overdoses a week in the site to averaging 10 a day. And, and in the first day that, the first two days that this tainted drug supply surfaced, there were 30 overdoses over those two days and over 80 in that neighborhood alone. Like it was, it was, the impact was, it was massive. It was startling. It was frightening. It, it, Visually, for for someone like myself, like a frontline worker at that time, the 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 visual impact wasn't wasn't just the urgency of multiple overdoses happening in our injection site, but also people being dragged in from the street unresponsive, and and just that, like moving from we have we have a service that's dialed in to um, we we have a problem, we have a major problem now in our community, and. Uh, and and so that that um, that was the climate for approximately um, that was in October of 2014. In the spring of 2016, a public health crisis was declared, and then in in um, uh, the fall of 2016, a friend and colleague of mine was uh, managing like a, an outdoor flea market for um, you know. Uh, you know, it was sort of like an economic generation project for people who are involved in in street vending to be able to be in an organized space um, where they wouldn't, you know, they, they wouldn't be harassed for vending on the sidewalk or whatever. And there were so many overdoses happening in that space and around it that she dedicated one of the uh, the tent, like the uh, one of the awning areas in that uh, flea market to be a, a, another supervised uh, consumption site. And and that um, she ran that with volunteers and um, a GoFundMe campaign. I volunteered there a couple of nights after, uh, you know, like the nights that I wasn't working at Insight. I would go down and I, I would volunteer and kind of lend a hand, and and that became recognized as um, as a crisis response by the uh, provincial health minister at that time. And and they were then sanctioned uh, like as a crisis response thing, and that that was called Vancouver Overdose Prevention Society or Vancouver Ops. Uh, 
I'm, I'm so just, since sorry, I'm just just going back to this. I just want to build this picture in my head a little bit more because I'm trying to sort of imagine it i guess in the framework of, of where we are in in victoria australia you're in, in vancouver so this is this is like a market that's in in the suburban area the city area of, of vancouver yeah no it was it was in in a, a downtown so um i live and work uh, like in in this neighborhood it's called the downtown east side and uh and that's where most of these services are are concentrated that's an area where there's a lot of open um, a drug use, open sex trade, uh, a lot of street homelessness, as well as a lot of services for for you know people who experience marginalization. So this flea market was like an empty. It was an empty city lot that um, uh, was um, allowed. You know, a, 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 like a nonprofit structure was established to to create this this market. You know, with tables and and tents. You know, like like covering it and, and stuff like that and, how, and it uh, functions every day there's no harassment from your local police or the council sending shutdown notices because you're in a space without the required permits to operate this and that get, get this the city funds it so um um because it, it's uh, there's so much uh street like sidewalk vending that uh, when you know, an, a, like a group of activists came along to say, "Let's organize this better and let's staff it with people with lived experience um, to be able to keep it clean, to um, you know, make sure it's you know, it, it, it's it's running along effectively." So, uh, yeah, it was it was it was actually a, a solution to a, a problem that the city didn't have a solution to this market. Hi, this is Hugo the Poet, and you're listening to 3CR. So all my people out there stay healthy, because after this the fight is really beginning, to claw back our own inalienable rights from totalitarianism. The nature of the uh, this neighbourhood, the downtown east, east side, it carries a fair bit of notoriety, um, because it was once known as Vancouver's poorest postal code zone, and um, and development has, has changed that, the, the reality of that, but like vancouver is you know this this gem of a city and it's a very affluent city there's a lot of global wealth and yet fixed in the middle of the city was is this neighborhood that was known nationally and internationally for actually like like the intensity of 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 poverty and and street homelessness and 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 also you know, people living out the effects of physical and mental illness. So it, it's the concentration is quite unique, right? In this in this community, and so in some ways, like the the traditional methods of like policing, for example, like let's clean up the streets. It's like you're not going to clean up those streets. Like that's so we need to start being open to different language and different solutions. I mean, there there's still those attitudes of being tough on crime and cleaning up the streets and all, all, all that kind of language that to me is obsolete and ineffective. And we have the proven data that, Hey, Hey friends, that doesn't work. Right. There's still street homelessness and there's still, um, substance dependency and mental illness, like cleaning up the streets doesn't attend to all of those realities. Right. 
in the 90s, uh, this same neighborhood um, encountered its first public health crisis. Um, and at that time, it was an overdose crisis. The, no the, the number of overdose deaths um, were, you know, um, about a, a approximately, um, at that point, uh, crisis levels were a third of what they are now. But, you know, it was still, um, so, so the incidences of, of death by overdose and, and also the transmission of HIV um, in, in the neighborhood at that time. There, there was like this strong like urgency and advocacy around uh, uh, changing the narrative, and that advocacy was done through drug user groups, um, through boots on the ground. It wasn't someone, you know, in a privileged decision-making place going, "Hey, why don't we treat you know people with substance dependency way better than we have?" Right? It was those people organizing. And, and saying, we need, you can't abandon us, right? We need to be a part of, of, of the priority in the city and in this country, right? So, so that, that's the background to the, having these services so concentrated and, 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 and well-supported. But the first thing that needed to happen, and, and, and the first thing in harm reduction, when I'm talking about harm reduction or, or, or training people, one, one of the most important things is trust building, right? And, and the, the first trust that needs to be built is from the caregiver to the one who needs care, right? And, um, you know, the, the person coming into a site and me saying, hey, what's your name and birth date uh, before you use drugs? Like that can create a lot of suspicion. It's like, why do you want to know? Because of the stigma and so on. So once, once, um, that trust was established then the next level of trust was police right like that we're not we're not a bunch of people who are promoting crime or harboring criminals or um enabling or or whatever that language is that we are you know uh a solution to a lot of suffering and police bought in right and they didn't buy in they they saw their own limitations at at, at some level I think um, I think the the phrase buy in as you know people acknowledging their limitations as part of that because um, you know especially in policing uh, sometimes I feel like the attitude uh, from some of the policing that goes on here is they feel like they're meant to be able to solve everything through their one tool um, so and they don't admit that maybe uh, they don't always have the solution and, and it would be better for them to, to to work with others I sometimes see that behind the scenes but I think when you you see the public discussion it's very much you know police 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 so that that is buy-in because that's an admittance of where um, where their limitations are so that they know they need to work with others yeah and and i mean i mean a, a part of the um the validation of that like in the 90s um this um local um you know um i don't know what he was he was uh, like he was involved in in um city work he wrote the four pillars drug policy that oh. that did did factor in yes policing was a part of the drug policy but um education uh, treatment and harm reduction were co-equals, right? And so, rather than just depending on policing to um, to inform our drug policy, uh, we we 
you know, and, and, and I need to emphasize it again. We have the data around the effectiveness of policing and drug policy, and it's not very effective, right? It's not effective for recovery. It's not effective for, you know, it's just, it's just really, it's proven to be ineffective, right? And so we need, we need to be able to have the liberty to approach it in different ways. You're listening to Insychedelia on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital, 3cr.org.au. Hearing the voice there of Ronnie Grigg, who is the founder of the Zero Block Society in Vancouver, Canada. You can find the website at thezeroblock.org. And they've outlined the problems in Vancouver, very similar to problems around the world. It's a lack of shelter, access to safe supply, which we've been hearing Ronnie talk about now limiting access to food and essentials where people have had uh, the access to these items uh, restricted and had the flow on effect from that and a lack of support and protection for frontline workers. The solutions are stated on thezeroblock.org, hotel rooms as shelter, ensure safe drug supply, organise frontline workers to deliver services and increase supports. We're going to be hearing a little bit more from Ronnie shortly but I thought we'd go back locally and hear about what's been going on in Melbourne and touch on what 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 makes effective peer work, which is at the heart of harm reduction efforts. Now, this was recorded as part of the Yarra Drug and Health Forum's first online forum, which was on Monday. If you want to go and watch the full forum, uh, you can find it at their website, ydhf.org.au. Uh, it's on YouTube, and you can also find uh, details that are starting to come up for June's online forum. Uh, and the uh, theme of the day was What Works and Why Evaluating Peer, work pro- peer Worker Programs with Sione Crawford, the Executive Officer at Harm Reduction Victoria, Dr. Graham Brown, Principal Research Fellow at the Australian Centre for Sex, Health and Society, David DeBean, who we're going to be hearing from shortly, who is a peer OD response worker with Barwon Health in uh, the Geelong region. Uh, Dr. Stephen McNally, who's the deputy CEO of the Pennington Institute, uh, who have a survey uh, available right now uh, for people who use drugs and they're collecting some data. Uh, And finally, and the voice you're about to hear is Danny Jeffcott. He's the program facilitator at AOD West Co-Health. And we'll be hearing more from Ronnie Grigg from the Zero Block Society shortly. Hi, I'm Danny Jeffcott. I'm from CoHealth AOD Response West. Um, so the AOD team's in, in Melbourne's West, uh, based out of HealthWorks. For this presentation, I was asked what a, what a health organisation needs to ensure a robust and supported workforce that includes peer workers. So first, I, I think we need to talk, need to set the setting. And the setting for service delivery is one where you have uh, multidisciplinary teams uh, built around to respond to groups of people. Peer workers are integrated into the team along with other professionals. So it's a setting where, where personal experience as well as academic experience is valued. And that integration really is the, the strength of the team. When I thought about what, what, what we really need for, for a robust and supported workforce, I think it comes down to, to three, three main things. The first one is clear guidelines that, that define the work. 
So that's, as, as David was saying earlier, that's the boring stuff perhaps around uh, position descriptions, having clearly defined uh, scope of practice so people know where the boundaries are. The second thing you need is effective partnerships and networks. So the, the relationships, uh, that's, that's what makes uh, any worker effective, is the people they interact with, the people who provide support, that's both internal to the organisation and external as well. The peak bodies, the, the external networks, internal, it, it's uh, your team, your manager, uh, your colleagues, the other people you interact with. The third, and, and I think one of the most important things that you need, is an empowering and supportive culture. You can have all the policies and procedures you like, but culture will eat that for breakfast. If, it's, if it doesn't align. Having a supportive and empowering culture really, really is what defines the success or not of having uh, peers or any other workforce development really successful. If having a successful culture, if, if that's the secret source, then the essential ingredient really is leadership. So when I was preparing for this, this presentation, I went and asked some of my peer workers what was important to them. One of the things that the first worker said to me was good leadership is really what defines and supports her to do her work. And she reflected on a, a time when peer workers were under attack in the, the newspapers and the uncertainty that that caused for her. At that time, our, our executive officer, Nicole Bartholomews, sent an all-staff email backing peer workers and defining saying that they are an essential component of our workforce. And receiving that email really felt her felt supported and effective in doing her role. Th those are the three simple points, clear guidelines that define the role and the scope of the work, effective partnerships with colleagues and stakeholders, and a, and a supportive culture will really define and develop successful workforce. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855 AM. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal Radio and um, you don't really get to do this much brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you yours. to all What's of you for giving us the opportunity to morning. speak on air. The bigger the reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully, it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station 
on 03 9419 8377. 3cr.org.au 855am and 3CR Digital. Before the break, Danny Jeffcat speaking at the Yarra Drug and Health Forum online forum in May, and you can watch the whole thing at their website, ydhf.org.au, and they cover and focus on specifically AOD, alcohol and other drug issues in the city of Yarra. I've got a short segment from another 3CR show, Done By Law. You can find them on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, or listen to them every Tuesday evening, 6 till 6.30pm. They are all about current legal issues, and it's presented by the Federation of Community Legal Centres, giving an alternative view of proposed legislation changes. This comes from their uh, their podcast, Policing and Protest During COVID-19, aired on the 21st of April. And they're speaking here with a spokesperson from Liberty Victoria, libertyvictoria.org.au, about their media release on the 14th of April, Refugee Protest, Arrest and Fines. Uh, We also caught up with uh, the COVID Policing Project, of which um, this interview also covered. Uh, COVIDpolicing.org.au is the website where anonymous reports can be made into policing behaviour during the restrictions. You're listening to Done By Law. Good evening, you're listening to Done By Law this evening with Katia and MJ. We're joined now by Michael Stanton, spokesperson for Liberty Victoria. At the end of Liberty Victoria's media release, there was a call for a response from the Victorian government. What do you expect from them at this point? Well, I suppose what we're really asking for is clarity uh, because uh, at the moment, one of the real problems with uh, the approach of um, police to these stay-at-home directions is that there's inconsistency and it shouldn't be the case that people have to guess whether or not their conduct is um, potentially unlawful. Uh, They need to have uh, absolute clarity about that. So it would really um, clear things up if the government um, announced uh, whether or not it, it was it held the view that all um, social, even socially distant pro- protesting um, is effectively prohibited under the current stay-at-home directions. Uh, whether or not that um, is lawful is something that can be tested um, through the courts if necessary. Uh, but it, it would be good to know, and I think it would assist those enforcing the law as well, uh, to know what, what the position of government is. Um, when, it, when it comes to these restrictions. There is a real danger, uh, and I think Deputy Commissioner Patton's um, been reported as having said that an inconsistent application of these stay-at-home directions um, is leading to an erosion of public confidence in Victoria Place, and no one wants that. Uh, people uh, want clarity when it comes to their rights. Uh, they want to know whether or not conduct they're engaging in is lawful or whether they they might receive a very, very significant fine. Um, And um, it shouldn't really be a matter uh, where one would hope lawyers have to get involved and things have to be litigated uh, through the courts. It would be much better if as part of the review process in relation to all these fines that have been announced, uh, Victoria Police take a Uh, very um, careful and considered approach in a way that respects their obligations as public authorities under the Charter of Human Rights. Hear that full interview on the Done By Law podcast, 3cr.org.au, and it's called Policing and Protest During COVID-19, covidpolicing.org.au to make an anonymous report. 
David Debean is a peer overdose response worker working with the harm reduction team at Barwon Health. Uh, David here was speaking about his role as a peer worker at the Yarra Dragon Health Forum May online meeting, ydhf.org.au. I'd like to um, acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I'm currently on, the Wadawurrung people, and uh, their leaders past, present and emerging. Yeah, so as uh, uh, Nick said in, in the introduction, I've been exclusively working in um, around harm reduction for the last uh, almost 20 years. And that's been uh, with uh, needle and syringe programs, mobile outreach program, uh, homelessness um, support for people with um, AOD issues. And um, I'm currently uh, working as a peer overdose response worker uh, with Barwon Health. So yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit about, I guess, the personal experience of, of a peer and that's really valuable depending on how you apply that to the work that you um, do and that you're engaged in. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have all the answers, like the, there is such a vast kind of diversity amongst the peer space. It's not a one size fits all kind of um, solution by any means. And um, like in any kind of counseling or welfare it's, um, or helping profession, it's that use of self. It's um, You have to be really clear about what you're bringing to the picture and um, not assuming that necessarily that you've got answers for other people or that you've, um, you know what's gonna work for them, but um, it's using that insight that's been kind of hard won and so some of that journey for me um just in acknowledging that you know there's the whole uh, shame and stigma and discrimination is a big is a big part of it as well so people that have used substances no matter where you are in that kind of journey or experience um whether you're actively using whether you're occasionally using whether it was a long time in the past or whether it's still you know currently what you you know what you're doing in your life today um when you talk about that and be open about that um there's a there's a real power in it and i think that that's something that peers bring um to the table that's unique that we all have our lived experience and it's not something to be kind of ashamed of it's been part of like forming who you are and uh your life experience and it's and it's shaped the lens that you, you you see life through and so to kind of like um keep that secret or hide it away or um feel uncomfortable um in owning that um i think is a detriment to 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 workers and to the to the space to the aod sector it's well known that uh, for many people that are involved in the um, alcohol and other drugs kind of um, sector and that, that work, that they've had their own experience. It's kind of what's piqued their interest. They've, um, they've um, had their ups and downs or they've gained a kind of insight and a compassion for people that are dealing with those circumstances and those issues. So, you know, I know personally I've, I've, I've um, sat in meetings and had co-workers or whatever kind of... Um, quietly uh, laugh about uh, their own experiences and share things that they've done themselves. Um, it, it's part of the human experience. It's not something that we should um, ever feel ashamed of, I think. So just talk a little bit about, so the, the role that I'm in now is um, the 
reducing harmful drug use through peer-led networks. It's been funded. Geelong was acknowledged as a hotspot amongst um, a few other places. We really had to think about this funding, you know, it might only be a year, 18 months. It was uncertain how long it would go on for. So what kind of um, could we create? We didn't want to make something where um, when the funding ended and the peer had to step out of the role, um, that the work couldn't continue. So the, the majority of the work that we've been doing is um, focused around uh, take-home naloxone program and naloxone training, so overdose awareness and prevention. We've had reported roughly 25% of people have reversed an overdose with the naloxone that they've been provided with. So one in four, generally, of everything that we give out, we know gets used and people report back to us and then they want a top up they want to get some more and um, we um we also hear anecdotally that it's it's used by um people that we haven't personally provided to it gets shared amongst um friends so we know that those stats are probably low there's something different when um a peer is training people in overdose prevention and awareness and and it's it's it's, it's coming through as a, a, a huge increase of people that are actually using it and taking that information on board i think peers are integral to that kind of to to building that trust and the ability to engage with people in a in a slightly different way you know people kind of look at you and suss you out and sometimes i'll ask you know oh, have you been there have you you know have you been where i've been um, oh, I can tell, I get this sense, but I've gotten to know other peers through the networks as well, um, peers that have been employed. And uh, there's some brilliant people out there, really passionate, doing fantastic work. And one of the things is um, stability. You know, you can't, it's, um, it takes a lot of time for people to become stable in their lives through their, through their using or whatever, or um, some people are up and down, people coming into the, into the workforce, um, as peers have sometimes had these huge kind of gaps in their working life you know that that might be generalization for some but you know for others i know that that's ex exactly the case like um there's a lot of kind of time out and gaps in their resume and work history and stuff and so to be able to use their experience their lived experience is a real foothold in you know and to have an organization that will employ a peer you know will take that um, kind of opportunity to to draw on uh, lived experience that that's amazing for uh, for someone that you know might have thought that they would they've, they've stuffed up their career they've had no career path you know they're just trying to like piece um, piece things together at, at some point when um, when things get clearer and so the stability to be able to to be a functional peer you need stability and around you know it's a little bit political or whatever but around the funding situation as it is you know i i had to leave the role once because it wasn't clear whether it was going to be refunded or not um the actual the funding approval came through after my contract had ended and i'd already left the job um so I was lucky enough to be re-employed again for a second round, but I find myself in that same position again. You know, I'm two mortgage payments away from being unemployed and I still don't know if I'm going to be employed. Um, so just just for um, 
any funders or um, for, for DHHS to, to take that on board like that. Yes, this is a kind of pilot. It's a test it and see, see how it's going to go um, situation. But um, if you want to get those good workers and keep them building on the foundations of the work that they've, um, they've done, there needs to be some kind of assurance or um, uh, for things to kind of like roll some, over in a more long-term way. Some job security there, David. That's, yeah. David DeBean is a peer overdose response worker with the harm reduction team at Barwon Health and he was speaking there on the topic of what works and why evaluating peer work programs, the topic of the May Yarra Drug and Health online forum, ydhf.org.au, to view the whole forum. Support Australian music. That little snippet from Sun in Aquarius from the Synthesize My Soul EP, available at sunninaquarius.bandcamp.com. 3cr.org.au And finally on In Psychedelia on 3CR 855 AM 3CR digital and 3cr.org.au Back to our interview with Ronnie Greek who heads up the Zero Block Society zeroblock.org Ronnie is from Vancouver in Canada where a public health emergency was declared in April 2016 in response to the rapid rise in overdoses and overdose deaths This is Ash Blackwell what has been the, um, I guess, the, the impact of that on the broader cultural understanding of these issues? Has that led to more empathy from these, you know, sort of recreational drug using communities towards uh, injecting drug users? It's like kind of like everybody's in the same boat now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, you know, that, that's a really good question because one of the polarities that I experienced prior to um, you know, the emergence of, of black market fentanyl was um, there was a polarization between harm reduction work and the recovery community that was really focused on abstinence-based outcomes, right? Um, and, and what the reality of, of, of that, that time was that um, uh, it wasn't just street-level um, uh, um, street homeless people with substance dependencies who were affected. It was, you know, having a more middle class effect, right? Um, where where people, um, you know, um, families were affected kind of across um, the spectrum, and and so it was really hard to ignore that this is a crisis and this needs a response, right? And and that empathy from like like the recovery community. Um, um, a lot of people began to work in harm reduction work and, and really sort of embrace that. The, 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 the point of the matter is, is that there's a, there's a human, there's a life. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a person that is in front of you that um, you can choose to give care to or, um, um, or, or just engage like in, on a basic human level. And that's what's important was was that that exchange and that sort of those, those humanizing acts that we can often overlook, but they're so critical, right? Stigma certainly is a, is it's still a massive driver of of uh, understanding. But um, what prohibition has also done it's really limited our understanding of of addiction, right? And what what is what are the outcomes? that the the substance user is is 
seeking, right? So for example, like we can, you know, we can acknowledge like the use of opiates for pain, right? Um, and we'll validate physical pain. Like if someone breaks their ankle and they get prescribed morphine, that's valid. But if someone has, you know, deep childhood trauma and, and takes that same morphine and crushes it up and injects it with a prescription, that somehow is invalid, right? And so, so uh, understand impact of opiates on, on that pain of trauma right, has really been limited because of prohibition, right, and, and because of these, these very um, distinct boundaries of what is valid pain, what isn't, and, and, um, and, and who knows, who, who can understand the outcome of the substance, you know, a, a medical professional can understand the impact on me better than I can, you know, so, so all of these, all of these complications around, around prohibition um, and stigma um, are just have, have really it's literally cost lives, um, um, both in the in in like the 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 true life and death factor, but in that that like you were describing that 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 general sense of being unwelcome, you're not a part of our you're outside of our cultural uh, flow, right? You like that stigma is like that is really an unconscionable outcome. Moving forward from 2016, uh, something that we've sort of been watching from overseas is this, uh, I guess, growing conversation around safe supply. Yep. Could you talk a little bit about the emergence of that conversation and, and how that's kind yep. of led up to where we are now? Vancouver's had a managed heroin program for a long time. Like it, it, it exceeds 10 years, right? It was, again, a research project and, and it was for pharmaceutical grade heroin, right? And so that that is is an example of of safe supply and and obviously and um, and and for me in in I I've like like very I, I tangibly witnessed the transformation in people that used to come into insight and um, and needed to um, be be involved in the hustle that that is required to fund, uh, 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 especially an opiate dependency. And, and then in the transformation of the person who gets access to safe supply is remarkable because they change from being, um, from they, they have the opportunity to step away from the criminalized aspect of, of drug use. So they're no longer a thief or they're no longer involved in, in, in survival sex, sex work or they they no longer rely on violence or what what have you to to fund their their substance dependency they they own they're they're only a drug user right you know and not all those other things around it and it's remarkable that what that stabilization uh can do for a person right not having to wake up and and the 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 fear and the intensity of having to be involved in property crime or violence or whatever it may be but you have a predictable supply you can get through like, you know, the stress of the hustle is gone and there's so much compounding stabilization that happens in that, um, a predictable drug supply. Um, and, uh, and that combined with housing really gives people, um, the chance to get to what, what I like to call the, 
you know, to, to begin to think about a vision for your life. Like in, in some manner, uh, you know, the, the, the middle-class experiences we get to, we get to imagine our life. We get to choose to some degree, um, where we live, uh, what our vocation, you know, you know, like we, obviously we have limitations within our, our systems, but if you have a, de- a dependency, um, and, and a combined with a, a mental or physical illness, that is an absolute luxury to have a vision for your life. So with that, that's what stabilization, you know, brings people towards when you don't have to worry about, um, um, the, the extreme sickness from opiate withdrawal. Um, and you, and you don't have to worry about your hustle and in potential incarceration and all of that stuff. Then you can begin to imagine, you know, like some, some outcomes of that has been education, some or, or um, apprenticeships. Some has been like some, someone uh, bought a guitar and learned how to play music, right? Some uh, housing stabilization, uh, health stabilization, and, um, um, and also recovery treatment, right? Um, but, but coming from places of stabilization, people can make those forward looking decisions for their life far easier than when you're street homeless, vulnerable, underslept, and not knowing where you're, where you're going to get your next fix from. What I mentioned earlier about this sort of like the history of it, there like, uh, um, was, you know, just sort of establishing that it, it's, it's been here and it's been like a proven outcome. And then, um, but the, the, the urgency around provide getting people access to a, uh, um, um, a safe um, and accessible supply um, has intensified. And so there are, there are a lot of, in, Van, in the downtown east side here, there in, in Vancouver, there are a number of clinics and programs where people can get access to um, morphine and hydromorphone. And then there, there's still that, uh, that managed heroin program. And they can, uh, and, and, um, and so there's an emphasis on trying to increase those services. Uh, and, and that's just in, in a response to the volatility of, of uh, you know, an unsafe uh, supply and, and an increasingly unsafe, like if we have, you know, fentanyl, then there's these concerns of carfentanyl and these increasing intensities of, 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 of opiates. So, um, there, there are a number of programs and in, innovations around that in this neighborhood. And then across the, the uh, nationally, there is, um, you know, in, this, in, in other communities, it's a bit of a tougher sell because it's so intense in this community. Um, and so the advocacy, the, the, there's a recognition that that is a, like a, a right and effective solution. But activating the will of, you know, medical professionals and whatnot, like, you know, there's, there's an ongoing struggle, but there, there is the, the, um, the language and the precedent to, um, prescribe opiates for, uh, people with opiate dependencies. Ronnie Greek from the zeroblock.org in Vancouver, Canada. And Psychedelia is on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. My name is Nick and you've also been hearing from Ash. We'll be back next week from 2 p.m. 
Thanks this afternoon goes to Yarra Drug Health Forum, whose online forum was on Monday. You can find it and watch it at ydhf.org.au, talking about peer workers. And if you are somebody that uses drugs, including alcohol, head to globaldrugsurvey.com, where they're running a special edition of their usual Global Drug Survey to find out more about what's going on with drug use and COVID-19. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our website, npsychedelia.org. And of course, at 3CR, 3cr.org.au. Querying Near is up next on 3CR. Stay tuned and support your community broadcasters. This is Psychedelia. For more information, visit Psychedelia.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Psychedelia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, DirectLine provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. And Psychedelia will be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear Psychedelia Live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.